we are in a series now that we are calling Heartbeat. And the idea is for us as a church together to explore the heartbeat, the core values of our church, Maricopa Springs, to see how these are values that don't just belong to us as a church, but values that belong to God, values that he's passed on to his church and his people. And so this morning, we're talking about the value of service. I think right on the front of your bulletin, we have just a definition of what that means here. It says, we want to be a church that's needed and valued by our community because we lovingly serve our city. I think maybe I made a spelling mistake on there. It's supposed to be lovingly serve our city. But I, I know that I've shared this story before. I'm going to share it again because I think it's a powerful story. The city that I used to live in back in Illinois, there was this church there, a few thousand people who went to church there. And they decided that they wanted to uh, upgrade their facility and they were looking around and realized they weren't going to fit on this piece of property that they had in the downtown area anymore. And, and I share this story because I think some of this value of, of service kind of comes out of this. So, so they, they met with some of the city leaders, the, the city council, the mayor, and they said, look, we're looking to expand our church, and we're wondering if the city would be willing to work with us. There's some tax breaks for property values, and maybe you can help us work some real estate deals. And, and the city leaders essentially sat across the table from the church leaders and said, why, why don't you just leave? You've been here for 30 years, and if you left tomorrow, nobody in the city apart from the people who go to your church would even care. So we, we don't see any value in cutting you any deals because you've never been a benefit to our community. And so unfortunately, the church up and left, and honestly, nobody even realized. And I tell you this story because I, I, think, it's, I think it's a tragedy that a church could disappear from a community and nobody would even know the difference. And so I say, may it never be that a similar story is told about Maricopa Springs. Like, I hope that if our church had to leave town, people would be clamoring for Maricopa Springs to stay because we're such a valued piece of this community. Let me pray for us, and we'll dive into this a little bit more. God, we thank you that you are a God who serves that this value comes out of who you are, that it's written into your DNA, that, that you are the God who serves. And we don't deserve to be served by you, but we praise you that this is something that you value. And so we pray that you would help our church be a church that values serving one another and serving our community and serving the world. And I pray that as we explore what this idea looks like a little bit more in detail this morning, that you would open our eyes, lead us, and guide us. Show us this truth from your word, we pray. And we give you thanks for the service that you've done in our lives to bring us into relationship with you. We praise you for that. Amen. Well, I don't think you have to look very far. Our world is an incredibly needy place, right? We're so blessed to live in America, in the suburbs, where Life is incredibly good compared to places like the slums of Calcutta, India, or the craziness going on in Syria right now, right? But even here in Maricopa, all around us, there are people in need. And you can change the landscape, you can change the geography, you can change the setting, but no matter where you go, the fact remains the world that we live in is a needy place. And in he here in Maricopa, you, you may not know this, but... There are single parents, 
who are struggling to raise kids all on their own. There are unemployed people wondering how they're going to pay next month's utility bills. There are widows who are lonely. There are kids who are hungry. There are people who are struggling with secret addictions, afraid that someone close to them might finally find out. There are mothers who are anxious about the well-being of their children, and there are fathers dealing with feelings of failure in their skills at being a dad. Right here in Maricopa, there are foster kids who need a home. There are racial tensions that need reconciliation. There are high school kids considering suicide. And there are parents who are wondering, how in the world can I do all of this? And that's not even mentioning the deeper philosophical questions that people sometimes wrestle with when they manage to shut the warm glow of the TV off, right? Who am I? Do I even matter? Does anybody care? Why am I living this life? Why am I here? Does my life have any meaning or purpose? And all around us are people who appear very well put together, but in reality they're needy because our world is a needy place. And I don't even have to use external evidence to prove it, right? Take one second and just look inside of your heart for a moment. You have needs. You have relational needs. You have spiritual needs. You have emotional needs, financial needs, needs of purpose and needs related to your identity. And a brief examination, I think, of your own heart reveals that that's true. So we don't have to look very far to see. It's, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? Mankind is needy. Jesus, I think, even alludes to this neediness in Matthew chapter 6, his Sermon on the Mount. He says this, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. And so God in heaven sees all of these needs. It's a mind-boggling idea that he doesn't just break down, but he's God, right? If it were me, I would. But the implication here in Matthew 6 is not only that he sees all of these needs, but I think this verse implies that God is actively working to meet needs in our world. But how is he doing that? Maybe you thought this week that God was going to meet your needs by giving you that winning Powerball ticket. (laughs) And then it didn't happen, right? So if God sees needs... And God meets needs. How exactly does he do it? In our mind, winning the Powerball would have been very easy probably, right? It just just makes sense, God. Like, help me out here. But God, I think, has a tendency to work in much more uneventful ways. Uneventful and yet significantly more intimately involved. And we get a picture of how God meets needs, I think. If we look at John chapter 13, I would love for you to turn there if you have a Bible John 13. And I always say, if you're a guest with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. And so after the service, you can stop by what we call our bookstore in the back. It's the table. And we would be happy to set you up with a Bible. But in John chapter 13, I'm going to start in verse 3. We have this scene of God's heart for meeting needs. John 13, 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. 
Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had uh, washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now this is a beautiful picture. The God who makes the rains fall from the sky to wash and refresh the world that he himself crafted, that very same God on his knees with dirty, stinky feet in his hands, scrubbing the toes of a couple of scraggly nobodies who he called his disciples. And clean feet, I think it's a simple need to be sure, right? Unless you're a man and you're married and you know how significant that is to your wife. A simple need, but it's a need nonetheless, right? So the example that Jesus set for his disciples was that they should recognize the needs around them and humbly serve one another, getting their hands dirty to actually meet those needs. And no task, no task was too low for them. It seems that if Jesus were to attend Maricopa Springs Family Church, he would be happy to take up the job of cleaning the toilets or taking out the trash. Wherever there was a need is where he would seem to fill in. And to wash the feet of his disciples, it was an incredible show of humility. Peter was even angry. He was embarrassed at the idea of Jesus, his master, washing his feet. And see, I think the temptation for the disciples was to think that Jesus was passing on a value for greatness. These guys, they lived in the presence of the Messiah, the one that they had been awaiting for. They were kind of a big deal to have a seat at his table. They'd been chosen by Jesus to have prime seats at his party. And soon the keys of the kingdom would be handed to them. They would raise up and lead a church through the greatest evangelism explosion in history. And this humble little movement that Jesus had begun was about to take the world by a storm, to progress from this tiny little regional belief system to this global phenomenon. And these guys would be at the head of it. They were going to change the world. And yet, the value that Jesus gives them in this moment is not a value for organizational effectiveness. It's not a value for leadership prowess. It's not a value for greatness. What he passes on to them is a value for service. That's what he wanted them to have. 
Jesus saw how needy the world was, and his heart was to meet those needs. How? How? Through his people, through his disciples. And what the disciples didn't understand in this moment that Jesus was giving them this picture was that he was going to humble himself to an even greater degree than getting down on his knees and washing their feet. Jesus was about to pass on to them the greatest act of service that they could ever imagine. He was about to go to the cross. He was going to wash away their stinky, nasty sin to meet their greatest need, healing the rebellion and alienation from God that defines what it means to be a broken human. And Jesus was in the process of giving his life so that they could be saved from sin, to meet the need that they could never have satisfied apart from him. And he wanted them to see that the calling that he was passing on to them, it wasn't a calling to greatness. It was a calling to a life of sacrificial serving, a call to the cross. He gave to them then, and I think to us, an example that we should follow so that through his people, a broken humanity might come to know Christ Jesus. As my old pastor, Bill Hybels, used to say, uh, the local church is the hope of the world. Maybe you've heard that before. Because it's the local church that proclaims the salvation that is found in Christ and humbly serves the community wherever those needs might be. Christ, he birthed the church so that the world would hear the gospel first and foremost and be saved. And he created the church so that the greatest need of mankind might be met through our service. And service, serving others, is what, it's what brings validity to our message that God loves the world. Serving brings validity to our message that God loves the world. It makes the message of the cross, that God's heart to redeem the lost is true. It, it makes it ring true in the world. And if we sit here every Sunday as a church and we talk about how much our God loves people and we worship God for all that Jesus did to seek and to save the lost, but we never prove that truth by living lives of service, then what is the world going to think about our message? Have you ever seen a church like that? It's painful to watch, I think. What will the world think about the God we worship if we don't serve the God who produces such self-centered followers. In James chapter 2, we see this very same question being asked. It says this, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things that they need for the body, what good is that? If we talk about Christianity, but we don't live lives of service. It's as if we're saying to a skeptical world, God loves you, but he doesn't care enough about you to meet you where you are. God loves you, but he doesn't care that you're hurting or that you have physical needs. God loves you, but he would never get his hands dirty in your life to prove it. God loves you, but your life is such a mess that he would never stoop down into it to help you. And see, the act of sacrificial serving translates our message from just a nice idea into a significant reality. In Christianity, it's never been a faith of mere head knowledge. It's never been theoretical ideas. 
Christianity has always been practical. It's been transformational. So our message is that God really does care. God cares enough about you that his people will walk through this loneliness with you. God really does care enough that his people, they want your belly to be full just as they want your heart to be full. God really does care enough that his people will sit and listen to you pour out your woundedness. God really does care enough that his people will sacrifice their own hard-earned money and give up their own possessions to help you. God really does care enough that his people, they'll put the value of service above the value of greatness. God really does care enough that his people will prove it by the radical way that they love you and treat you. And Jesus, he cared enough to serve, and he wanted his followers to share that value with him. I'm actually going to sit down for a couple of minutes because I want you to hear a story about the impact that being served had on one individual. Her name is Kathy. Kathy, if you want to come on up here. She's a visitor today. She's representing a Heart for You Pregnancy Center here in Maricopa. And if you were with us a couple of months ago, we talked a little bit about them during our missions moment. We shared some information. But I want you to just hear from Kathy about what this ministry of service has meant to her. Am I on? (laughs) Well, good morning. Um, As Pastor Grady said, my name is Kathy Barnella. I've been a resident in Maricopa for going on 12 years now, and I'm in my 11th year at working at the casino. Perhaps we've crossed paths at Fry's, maybe out at the casino. I see a few faces that I know. <laughs> so, But I, it's wonderful to be here today, and I wanted to share with you an experience that I had in my life, um, which is why I'm at a Heart for You Pregnancy Center. Um, it's about my abortion experience. Um, this will be my fourth time to share it out loud. So thank you so much for allowing me here. <laughs> Forty-three years ago, the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in the infamous Roe v. Wade's Uh, case was struck down, um, states prohibiting abortion, thus making the killing of an unborn child legal in all 50 states. Most people do not know that abortion is one of the most common surgical procedures performed in the U.S. At least 1.2 million pregnancies ending in abortion are reported each year. Contrary to common perception, abortion is not rare and most likely has affected many people whom we know. By the age of 20, one in seven women will have undergone at least one abortion. By the age of 45, one in three. I am one of those. After 40 years of silent grieving and shame, I'm here to share with you how my choice affected my life. I was 17 years old one year after Roe versus Wade um, became, was legalized in 1973, when at the advice of those I loved and trusted, including the minister of the church that I grew up in in Iowa, told me abortion was the right thing to do. My plan was to go to Arizona, have my baby, figure out life from there, but the forces that be had other plans for me. 
So I left my family and my friends, and I moved to Arizona in August of 1974. My aunt, who happened to work for Planned Parenthood, took me to San Diego that next weekend where I terminated the life of my child. Thankfully, I have no memory of the procedure, but waking up in a recovery room full of girls and women in physical pain and anguish is a memory I will never forget. I've talked and I've read many testimonies of women who actually experienced and were awake during the procedure and the horror of the abortion of the baby being ripped apart and torn from the safety of the womb. My aunt took me clothes shopping right after I was released, so the task of covering up that horror and shock began, and it continued for the next 39 years. I realized when I stepped out of that clinic that I had done something terribly wrong. Well, not long after that, I married my current husband that I'm still with after 41 years, um, and together we have two beautiful daughters. I received Jesus as my Savior in, in 1976. So the military moved us to many duty stations around the country, and we had one tour of overseas duty. Our life was normal, filled with church and and sports and school activities, but that abortion would visit me in my dreams at night. So I'd gotten really good at covering up my pain, and unfortunately, my Christian walk became my best mask. Mm. So once our girls were grown and leading lives of their own, the covering and denial continued to the point where I began to deal with deep bouts of depression. I had a wonderful husband, and I had great girls. Why was I so miserable? Well, I then began to medicate myself with alcohol to escape that piercing pain. And I ended up phasing myself out of a church that I loved and served in for 14 years and walked in the flesh for the next 10. But God never gave up on me, and neither did the praying friends that, that I had that were there for me. I struggled with that depression and the loneliness, and I continued with the closet drinking. I didn't know how to talk about it. I didn't know that it stemmed from that day that I walked into an abortion clinic and walked out no longer pregnant. One of my praying friends from my former church had been inviting me every year since I had left to go to ladies' retreat with them at Prescott. And every year I said, nope, not going. <laughs> well, in 2013, I caved in and I went. And, and it, was, it was very awakening for me because I was reminded of God's patience and his kindness and his love for me and that he saved me. But after that mountaintop experience my self-destruction just continued. So on December 24th, 2013, the Lord got my attention loud and clear. It was a day after my last alcohol binge. I was really sick. Two ladies with whom I'd spent time at camp called me that day to check on my dad, who'd been hospitalized at the time, and the conversation ended up, of course, going to me, and I ended up telling them everything, everything that I had never told anybody before. And I ended up rededicating my life to the Lord that very day. That following Sunday, God led me to First Baptist Church. I had driven by the church on the way to work back and forth for years. And I saw that pregnancy center sign and saw it every day. <laughs> so while Pastor Johnson was sharing the announcements, I opened the bulletin. And there was a flyer about the pregnancy center. And it said, if you know anyone considering abortion 
or suffering from a past abortion, contact the pastor. And I wondered to myself, hmm, could this be what's wrong? Is this what's bothering me? So now I needed to get the courage up to contact the pastor, and that I did. I completed the Forgiven and Set Free Bible study in the spring of 2014 with Vanessa and Christy Hicks from the Chandler Pregnancy Center. This is a post-abortion study. And for the first time in my life, I didn't feel alone. There were others who knew what I was going through. They called it silent grieving and a form of post-traumatic stress syndrome. And the healing had begun. I'd always known that God forgave my past sin, but I didn't embrace it until then for that concerning the abortion. I experienced a freedom and a relief from my guilt and my shame. I was able to grieve with my child and identity and praise in the knowledge that my baby was with Jesus and someday we would be together. But that's not all. I recently celebrated two years of sobriety Christmas Eve. Yeah. <laughs> so, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so during the forgiven and set free Bible study, I began praying and asking how the Lord could use me. And I realized that there may be other women in our community who might be struggling or need help after an abortion. Thus, my involvement in the pregnancy center began. I am now a post-abortion counseling and education leader and recently had the privilege of leading a forgiven and set free study in which I witnessed the Lord set two beautiful ladies free from the pain of abortion. So we at the Heart for You Pregnancy Center, we've heard the call of the Lord in our lives to be here for those who need direction, whether it be a pregnancy test, an unplanned pregnancy, parental support, or post-abortion classes. So we here are there for those who need comfort, for those who need the love of Jesus. We are willing vessels who are trusting God to bring those whose lives need the strength and healing power of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we look forward to partnering with you as we pray for and love on this community of Maricopa, Arizona. And today is the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. So thank you for having me. <laughs> Thanks, Kathy. Um, Vanessa and I talked about uh, having Kathy come and share with you guys several months ago, and, and uh, I realized, I think yesterday or maybe Friday, that today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. It just, it just sort of happened that way. But Kathy, thank you very much for sharing that story with us. We appreciate it. And there, there are so many wonderful things about that story, about what God does in the human heart to to transform people and to set them free from shame and grief. And I'm thankful for the work that God has done through Vanessa, Kathy, through you as well, through the team that you guys have at A Heart for You Pregnancy Center. Um, I'm thankful for First Baptist Church being willing to serve our community and, and host that pregnancy center on their property. Uh, I'm thankful for the people who sacrifice their time and their money to make uh, that ministry continue to run there. You know, the value of serving people so that they see the reality of the love of Jesus, it cannot be understated or overstated, I should say. If it weren't for the people of God being willing to serve her in her time of need, who knows how Kathy's story might be different today, right? Jesus wants his people to have a value for service. Christ birthed the church, I said, so that the world might hear the gospel and be saved. 
He created the church so that the greatest need of mankind might be met in Jesus. And serving others, I think, is what brings validity to that message that God actually loves the world. It makes it ring true in tangible ways. God, I think, uses our service to ultimately lead people to himself. But there's one other element in this story from John 13 that I think I need to point out, okay? Uh, Jesus says to his disciples in the same chapter, if you still have your Bibles open, look with me just a little bit further in John 13, verses 34 through 35. Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This means that the world is watching the church. The world is watching to see whether we can follow through on even just this commandment to love one another. And we know the world is watching because the world loves to slam the church, right? And forget practicing love for our enemies for just a second. Like, just set that command aside. We know that one. But set it aside. The world wants to see if we can even love our friends. If we can love our brothers and sisters, our family within the body of Christ. And so Jesus says, love one another. Ah, but I would say that too takes a great deal of humility, doesn't it? Yeah, it takes humility to serve the world. It takes humility to use our position as the redeemed in Christ to selflessly serve the needs of an ungodly and even, at times, ungrateful world. But it takes a whole different kind of humility to actually be served, doesn't it? Look again at Peter in John chapter 13, starting in verse 6. It says, Jesus came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Oh, Peter, such a proud man, isn't he? He almost sounds like an American in his self-sufficiency. <laughs> Doesn't he? How can we love one another if we're all too proud to be served from time to time? I grew up in a house where my, we, my family didn't have a whole lot of like disposable income. My dad was in ministry. My mom ended up teaching, which we all know teachers are overpaid, but um, <laughs> that's a joke. Um, you know, my mom was a teacher. My family just kind of tended to get by, right? And so I always hated asking my parents for money. And I had this chance to go with my church youth group on this retreat for a weekend, and the retreat was a couple hundred bucks, and we were going to stay at a hotel, and some of the meals were covered, but others weren't. And so I asked my parents for the money for the retreat, but I didn't ask them for additional money to cover the additional meals. And uh, so I'm on this retreat, and we're at this fast food restaurant, you know, me and my friends, and I, I had a youth group probably of 150 kids, and so quite a few kids there who knew me. And they all noticed that I was reserving the table and not waiting in line, and they, they offered, hey, what can we get you? What, what can we pick you up? You know, what can we buy for you? And I would lie and say, I'm, I'm not hungry. I'm good. I'm just going to save the table. I'm set, right? And after observing this happen a couple of times, one of the youth leaders who was a guy who mentored me through high school, he came over to me and he told me, he, he called me out. 
He said, Grady, I know that it hurts your pride to accept the kindness from your friends, but every time you refuse their kindness, you rob them of an opportunity to serve you and serve God. And man, did that sting, right? As like a sophomore in high school, that, that stung. And he got right to the heart of it. My pride was keeping other people from serving God. Okay, now I still struggle to accept kindness from people from time to time. I still struggle to let people serve me. It still hurts my pride and my self-sufficiency. But at least I see it now for what it is, that it's sin. In truth, it's sin. Peter wasn't offended by Jesus washing his feet because Peter's feet were already clean. That wasn't the issue. I'm pretty sure Peter wasn't offended by Jesus washing his feet for Jesus' sake at all, actually. I think Peter was offended by Jesus washing his feet because it meant that Peter would have to swallow his pride and humble himself. And think about it. Peter was already lower than Jesus on the totem pole, right? Jesus was his master. And if Jesus lowered himself to serve Peter by washing Peter's feet, what did that say about Peter? It meant Peter was less than a slave, a gutter rat. And Peter was too proud to be that low. He was self-sufficient, ultimately using uh, a self-righteous attitude to appear better while not really wanting to admit his need before Christ. But how can the world know that we belong to Jesus by our love for one another if nobody in the church is humble enough not only to serve but also to be served from time to time? And obviously the world needs the church to serve out there, right? Maricopa needs our church to be a church that serves to bring the message of Jesus to a lost generation by validating our message that God loves people through service. But, but we also need to be humble enough to accept the gift of being served from time to time, don't we? We're not meant to be self-sufficient. In fact, we are supposed to be codependent. Codependent on Christ and codependent on his body. And Kathy, she needed the listening ear of her friends who heard her confession, dealing with this struggle of being post-abortive and alcoholic. And she was humble enough to actually accept it when it was offered to her. And so if you go into the hospital, how can we pray for you unless you let us know? If you can't make a utility payment, how can we help you unless we know your need? If your car breaks down, how can we offer to give you a ride unless you tell us you need a ride? If you're struggling with sin, how can we remind you of God's grace and his forgiveness and help you stand against it if you don't come and confess that sin to someone who's trustworthy? If you're hurting, if you're suffering, if you're in need, how can we be your family and come alongside of you unless you humble yourself to let us know? And so I charge you this morning as our church family, serve the world out there because service brings validity to the message of Christ's hope and redemption and forgiveness and grace. And also serve your church family here at Maricopa Springs because the world is going to see it and be drawn to it. 
And there's no place for pride among the people of Christ. There's no place for self-sufficiency here. That's just not how we operate. Okay, now look, the most important piece in this whole thing is really not what you do at all. I know I just spent probably 20 or 30 minutes telling you how you need to serve other people and you need to let people serve you from time to time. But if that's all that you walk away with this morning, then I think you've really missed the point. So let me try and say the most important thing one more time in closing, okay? The reason why Maricopa Springs Family Church has service as one of our core values, it's not because it's trendy or cool, okay? It's not because we want to be good citizens or even because we actually have anything to prove. That's not the reason. The reason why this is our core value is because it's at the very heart of the gospel, The cross was the greatest act of service that ever was. Your soul was steeped in the stains of sin. Your heart was caked in the filth of transgression. And yet Jesus, he wrapped the towel around himself. He humbly ascended to the cross of your guilt. And he scrubbed your soul clean with his nail-pierced hands. He served you. He shed his blood in an act of service so that you could be redeemed from sin. He served you. So now, of course, we serve him in an effort to pay him back, right? No, no, no. We serve him out of love, out of deep gratitude. We serve others without any expectation that we'll ever receive anything in return. We do it to please God. We do it because Jesus asked us to. We do it because of the example that he gave us. We serve, ultimately, because of the cross.